listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about all things food and drink. Uh, both Ollie Lloyd, founder of Great British Chefs, and Holly Shackleton are away. Uh, as you know, um, Ollie's off on some hippie thing. Um, in North Africa, um, probably dragging his poor kids behind him, <laughs> as, as he usually does. Um, and Holly is also away. So I'm glad to be joined by my guest presenter. Uh, we've been guest presenter for a couple of weeks and yeah. next week as well. Amazing, yeah. You've been enjoying it so far, it's Harry. It's been really good. And a lovely opportunity to come and have a chat about food, which is like mm. my favourite topic. Yeah, drink. favourite topic of all time. And eating. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Harry, Harry Gotra, who has her own amazing website with, oh, just really teaching people how to cook and, and really teaching people to understand Indian food much better. Yeah. That's your mission it in is, life. It is, yeah. It's, and it's about getting people to cook. Yeah. Which is... Anything. Um, getting people to cook anything. Anything. Just yeah. get in the kitchen and have some fun. Yeah, have some fun and some family time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well. Um, we've had some good guests so far. I bet you didn't realise you were going to eat so much, did you? Do you know what? I've had the best time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've already got a um, packed studio full of food. And guess what? We're, we're going to have gin now. Do you drink? I, I, Do you drink no. alcohol? Yes. Of course, I thought you did. <laughs> um, obviously, Ollie Lloyd likes to crack on with a bit of whiskey and, and all sorts of other things. But So you're okay for a little bit of gin? I think I, I'm very happy to have a little bit of gin. Well, that's good because we're joined by Tom Warner of Warner's Distillery. Hi, Tom. Hello. And, and uh, we're going to listen to your story in a minute. But I'm very familiar with uh, Warner's rhubarb gin. Fantastic. It was the... Um, it's our number one seller, uh, it and it was the first rhubarb gin in the world. So we're very proud to have invented rhubarb gin. Um, it's been copied uh, remarkably uh, ever since yeah. because of the popularity of the product. I think driven two things. I think the flavour really resonates with the British consumer, and it's pink. Um, and it's pink. pink has unfortunately and turned into a flavour. It does look beautiful. It does look beautiful. Thank you. Um, we're also joined by um, Peter. Uh, Peter? What did I say that? Jonathan <laughs> Cushing. Hi, Jonathan. Well, How are you doing? Um, and Jonathan is a bit of an expert on American food and he's got a restaurant called Bankhouse Restaurant. And the reason why I want to speak to Jonathan is I know nothing, probably next to nothing, about American food well, as, we'll, as, as a thing. Yeah, we'll change that. So I'm, ho I'm, I'm hoping you're going to teach me yeah. some stuff after I've had some gin. That's <laughs> oh, what I was, that'll make it easier. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Now, um, uh, quite often on this programme... I probably we probably shouldn't say this, but but we do say if you're going to be a new producer and you're going into the world of food, it is a pretty crowded marketplace and it's tough to get noticed. Um, food is amazing in the UK at the moment. I think there's loads of things happening. But would you put your mortgage on the line and right at this point? precise point in time come up with another gin brand and and probably i would say I, I i get lots of people asking me you know advice in the food sector i'd probably say no right at this point in time it is pretty crowded isn't it don't you um, think it's exceptionally crowded uh, and if i was if this was um 
2012 when we were just about to launch. I don't. I think I'd be pulling the pin on that. I wouldn't be going yeah. into it because it's quite incredible what's happened within the category. Hopefully, it can just sustain all the fantastic producers that have come in. But um, it is particularly crowded now. Um, relatively low barrier to entry gin compared to some spirits because you yeah. don't have that aging process. But if you're doing it the right way, which a lot of people have done, um, you're buying quite expensive distillation equipment. Um, you are, yeah, as you said, putting your life savings on the line, which is what we did. We put you know almost the shirts on our back into the business. So you are rolling the dice in yep. a very competitive uh, category. Luckily for us, I mean, we, we've we've done okay, but we've been in the game now for nearly six and a half years. But we nearly pulled the pin when we started doing our research in 2010, 2011. Um, when we found out there were two other craft producers of gin in the UK. Yeah. Two. <laughs> so that nearly put us yeah. off because we were, we thought we were the cleverest guys on the planet and no one had thought of this. It yeah. was very, very early days. Um, and it was it was Sipsmith and Chase were the two brands. Yeah. Um, we hadn't heard about them until we saw that we got this market report from the, <laughs> the library in London. was the only place we could get it for free. And uh, we, we saw the, the na- these two names. They'd started craft distillers. We were like, oh, it's been done. It breaks your heart almost, doesn't it? Yeah, when you're we were like, entering but the into point, correct. New. The point of any business, it doesn't matter if it's food business or whatever, is is to find a niche yeah. where nobody else is. Correct. That, that, that's you know with any business, or you do it much much better than somebody else, or you do it much much cheaper than somebody else. But you can't just do me too. And no. that's not just to do with food; it's to do with any business. There is, um, you and that's have what no worries point. me with the, the number of people piling in. It's like, well. What is different, and yeah. and or is it much much cheaper, or is it you know what is it that makes it different? And you've got to find a differentiator, haven't you? It's it's key within the category. Um, as, as we've always said, we're trying to save the world from mediocre gin. So that the context <laughs> of the business from day one was make the best possible liquid, and that drove every single decision we made in terms of equipment, process, um, uh, and uh, just everything that we put into the gin. Um, there's no, as you said, if we'd said, right, we're going to try and make the same type of gin as all the big boys do, what's your point of being in the category yeah. other than being expensive and irrelevant? You're not so. going to beat their marketing budget, that's for sure. Correct. Uh, so can I give you a, bit, a few stats? Um, the sales of gin have tripled since 2009. Yeah. I mean, for any any sector, whether it's food or not, I mean, that, that is to triple in size is, is huge. Uh, we spent £461 million on gin last year. Wow. And that was up. 32.5%. So that's just in one year, our spend on gin has gone up by a third. Yeah. And, and you know, the, when we did our market research at the start, we didn't, we didn't know we were going to do gin. You know, we, we were, this was the evolution of a, a, an idea about essential oils. We were going to grow flowers on the farm and distill them. We then said, what will you do with the still for the rest of the year? You can make booze, brilliant. We were going to make everything to start with. And we realised that actually gin, you didn't have to age it, but it satisfied our our foodie need to create recipes because it's like baking a cake. You come up with a recipe, you try it. If it doesn't work, you haven't had the ageing process, which is why the category is mm. so dynamic. So many new producers have come into it. The big boys have won because they had established distribution networks. So their pie has tripled in size and their slice has grown. Yeah, exactly. But all of the small... Small guys have given authenticity and and earthiness to the category, um, which I think has brought so many new people into spirits. But but the thing is, if you are one of the big distillers and you've got a huge, amazing network, you know, you're in every supermarket, you're in yeah. every off license, you're you know in every place because you've already got that logistics sorted out. 
Um, also, your unit cost is very low because yeah. just because of sheer volume. Um, the problem is it's immensely copyable, which I think is what's happened with the tonic sector as well, is that you get the amazing people who come up with all these, these fantastic blends and people go, oh, God, yeah, we could do that. We'll copy that. Yeah. And, and they can. And they can copy it. And they will always beat you unless you're quicker than them um, because they've just got the clout. And, and I think the early players within the category mm. have been able to get a small toe, like businesses like ours, to get a small toehold away from the big guys because we were inventive at the start. So yeah. pink gin um, is now a flavour, unfortunately. Ours is pink because it's rhubarb yeah. uh, flavoured, but they're, all the big boys have launched pink gin they call them pink gins and people go into bars and ask for a pink gin um but they've done that off the wave of craft distillers that created fruit based primarily what we did with rhubarb mm. um they've copied that they've got the distribution network overnight um one of the biggest distillers i mean diageo launched their gordon's premium pink that's probably responsible for at least half the growth in the category last year yeah I bet. it's I bet. it's it's crazy and it's brought if you look at the stats within the category it's brought people that were not even drinking before into alcohol into gin, as a product. Yeah. Well, um, I've got some a little bit of historic stuff here. Um, so I think everybody knows, or, or most people know that, that, that there's a sort of gin, you know, from Holland, mm -hmm. uh, sort of Dutch. But actually, uh, gin was very different there. It was actually whiskey-based and, yep. and it had juniper and all that sort of stuff. So... The gin we bought, we we sort of took from that and and developed over here is actually very British, yeah. it, because it, it's done completely differently, um, and so you know we are number one fans of gin in the world. Oh, hundred percent. Or well, sort of always have been. So it's a juniper led uh, spirit, and um, essentially people add botanicals. But you're not allowed to call it gin unless it's got juniper. Correct. It's a juniper. Remove juniper, it's a herbal spirit. Yeah, exactly. Now, people add coriander and licorice and cassia and lemon peel, you know, all sorts of mm -hmm. amazing things. Um, but you, you've got to have juniper berries in it. And by 1726, we were so in love with gin, particularly in London, there were 1,500 working stills in London. You know, uh, this is a couple yeah. of hundred years ago. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. yeah. Almost as many as there, there are, are now. now. <laughs> well, now there are 315 distilleries. Yeah, which is incredible. Uh, yeah, but I think a lot of people were making, you know, doing stills in their, in back their yard. Back gardens. <laughs> so it was like that dedicated <laughs> uh, to gin. And apparently there were 6,287 places where you could buy gin yeah. in London. But, and, and the population would have been far, far fewer than it is now. Of course. Oh, yeah. And it, it was the gin craze. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, a totally unregulated industry. So <laughs> if you couldn't get hold of juniper, apparently you used turpentine because yeah, there were similar flavour yeah, profiles. If you there. couldn't get hold of alcohol, you used sulfur uric acid so very bad quality products being made people were killed by this yeah. stuff there was good stuff as well um but it it it, it had uh, a knock-on effect that still resonates to this day so the beer industry were annoyed that everybody was drinking gin yeah so they got an artist called hogarth to, to paint two pictures beer beer street and gin alley gin alley you don't want to live there everybody's got very poor clothes they're threadbare <laughs> they're thin they're hungry the buildings are falling down yeah. beer street everybody's reading politics eating pies flagons of ale they're all happy so the the message was 
beer makes you happy, gin makes yeah. you sad. And to this day, we've all got a friend that yeah. says, I can't drink gin, <laughs> it makes, it me, makes cry. me cry. Oh yeah, it makes me cry. So, so we, we have an abiding love affair uh, with gin. I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether it's plateaued, still yeah. growing massively. Yeah. Um, I presume that, that it's taken the place of some other alcohol. It can't just be growth in, in drinking because we know people drinking alcohol has gone down actually uh, quite a bit. Um, so I think it's really interesting. Uh, also a growth of rum been yep. happening recently, yep. um, I think, and uh, cocktails. So um, I, I, I can see it continuing to grow a bit, but I do think it's going to be a pretty hard one to enter if you're thinking of entering. If you're entering now. Yeah. Now. I think what, what the craft gin producers like you guys have done is just make it really exciting and interesting because it's always been what mother's ruin as they used to call it, it just used to be gordon <laughs> yeah and really so you've, you've yeah. added that interest and that vibrancy back mm. into it and okay the big boys have taken yeah. that on and run with it but you you know you're still sort of underneath we've we've given that. the category authenticity and, and sex appeal yeah. is, the, is the reality it's made it vibrant um it's, I think, confused. Consumers are in a place now where they're quite confused because so we've got eight gins now mm. in the world, and we're one distillery. Um, so the category there are now thousands of gins for consumers to uh, choose from, and there's walls of gins in shops and online. And I think there's so there's a lot of product. There's not a lot of brand, and I think. Unfortunately, brands like ours that do everything with natural ingredients and do it the hard way are giving authenticity to People a whole are. raft of yeah, other yeah. products which are contract distilled and contract bought. You know, there's a lot less care and attention going into every bottle. We always say we're but not a looked, craft gin looked, because yeah. we, we're a graft gin. It's the amount of work that's <laughs> yeah. gone into that pack. So, so um, I'm going to have a little bit of your rhubarb gin because I do like it. I've had it before. Please do. Would you like me to um, pour? Um, no, I'm going to ask you to talk. I'm okay. going to pour, if that's okay. Uh, um, explain to us exactly how you make this gin. Okay. So, so if, if somebody doesn't know at all how to make gin, how do you make it on your farm? So we, uh, we start with a London dry gin. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's made in London. It's a process you follow. It, it was invented uh, sort of in the early 1800s. And it is a benchmark for, it's it's probably the, the most uh, respected way of making gin on the planet. Um, and it's what every, every craft distiller worth his salt will want to produce their flagship London dry gin. Um, so that's the that's the start of our of our process, and it means that we are distilling pure alcohol. So gin uses the purest, cleanest alcohol you can get. It's ninety six point six percent clear, and we're putting that into the still with herbs and spices that we call botanicals. Juniper is the mandatory one, but we've got coriander seed, angelica root, orange peel, lemon peel, black pepper, lots of others that go in there. So we create this wonderful spicy London dry gin. Um, at the end of the distillation, it comes off the still at eighty nine percent for a London dry. It must come off at 70. Ours comes off at 89% alcohol, so very, very high alcohol content. We then water it down for our rhubarb gin with rhubarb juice. So we're cutting it to bottle. So that's how we get so much rhubarb in every bottle. Um, if it was our London dry gin, we'd just add water. But for our um, for our rhubarb gin, we're using that fresh uh, rhubarb juice. And you end up with a beautiful rhubarb gin, which has got all the spice and juniper of our London dry, but it's got this fantastic fruity rhubarb gin here as well. So so if you're making it in your farm, you will, you will have somebody who's working with you and and experimenting with what everybody calls botanicals. Now for me that that's probably very much like a master 
brewer or a master winemaker in that you're trying to look at, oh, if I add that, it slightly changes the profile and if I do this. And it's the combination of getting all those things together which which is the art of it. Oh, definitely. I mean, because basic gin is basic gin. uh, uh, But what we're seeing in the craft market is people experimenting with uh, literally... Millions of of, of of sort of varieties and differences that you you, you could achieve. Yeah. You um, you name it, and and do you know it's weird. This idea came from essential oils, so growing plants on the farm. We're back onto that. So most gin in the world is made using dried botanicals. So our firstborn, our London dry. When we and you talked about evolution in the category. After when we started our business, we used the best spices we could find. We built our recipe. We got our still, which is a, a Holstein still from Germany, best still you can buy in the world. We always like to say, and we created this fantastic London dry gin. We used the spring water on the farm for during the distillation. That was enough. 2012, early 2013, the category becomes very very dynamic. So we've gone through the flavoured gin creation. A few people in the category tipped us as being the, the guys that sort of created that wave. Within the, It's been ruined by people using synthetic materials and, and shimmer. You can buy gins with like shimmer in now or, or, or bubblegum flavoured and all these other <laughs> terrible things. But we use natural ingredients from the farm. But we've also gone back to becoming self-sufficient now in as many of the botanicals as possible. So we've got this, this mission on the farm at the moment and our lemon balm gin which um, we launched two years ago. It's called Melissa, uh, after Melissa Officinalis, the lemon balm plant. We've made it less cryptic now. We're relaunching it as lemon balm so people actually understand. Again, you could be too clever with branding, so it's <laughs> called lemon balm gin now. But we are now self-sufficient in the lemon balm, lemon verbena and lemon thyme. So that grows on the farm and we're distilling fresh. So instead of most gins in the world, you're buying dried ingredients. We're using fresh. And, you know, when you're cooking, the difference between fresh and dry is significant. So we're now, um, you know, they're, they're picked and distilled within an hour uh, when we're doing that distillation. There's a seasonality to our distillation because only certain months of the year, these plants are, are mm. of the right quality to be distilled with. So we have to be meticulous with our planning on a lot of our products. You know, the rhubarb we get once a year. Our lemon balm gin, we can only distill months of May through to August. But, but, but the story of what you do is important. And we, we have lots of guests on this programme that say if you don't get that story right and, and, you know, you can be passionate about it, you're going to struggle in the craft area, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, because... There's got to be personality that sits yeah, behind that. Absolutely. There's got to be a love and a passion. Yeah. There's a reason for doing it. You're not one of now the big see, boys. <laughs> I prefer that with double Dutch pomegranate and basil tonic. Yeah. You see, Great that, tonic water. Rhubarb gin. Yeah. And then double Dutch pomegranate. You and should basil get. Have you had the double Dutch girls on? Uh, yeah, uh, no, we haven't actually. But they're I brilliant. do know them very well. Yeah, yes, they're, they're I do know very well. And uh, and actually, in a way, I feel a bit sorry for them because they literally came up. I mean, they had watermelon and cucumber tonic, uh, and pomegranate and basil, which I still have in my house to this day. I still yeah. order, um, which at the time was like, wow, these are different, and yeah. and and it was definitely ahead of fever yeah. tree, I, I think, and all, all that yeah. sort of stuff. You know, but they're small and it's hard and it's tougher. For, it's getting tougher and tougher for them because everybody's just jumped on that. Very much so. Which is fine. That's what a free market is about. But that's my favourite. Warner's rhubarb and then pomegranate and basil tonic. I'd it's, recommend and, that and to and anybody. I think the, the great thing about genuine craft producers, they tend to be very passionate. Yeah. So that's great for selling your product. And we spend a lot of time just 
videoing me being an idiot as part of our social <laughs> media, but but talking about what we're doing at the farm because, you know, if I could fire my chest, you know, use my chest as a cannon, I think that's out of Moby Dick, but it's, that's the amount of passion we have for the brand. Um, but as a craft producer, you do things the way they should be done, which actually gives you a really rich narrative to talk to the consumer because it's what consumers want to buy into. It's not made and up they'll fun. Find, they'll find you out if you don't. So, Correct. So it's a very short-term... Yep business proposition i think if you if, if you're not going to do it properly there's a lot of it in the gym category at the moment but yeah. i think it will start to shake, shake out, out yeah. as you said uh, the growth that's been in the category the last few years is we've amazing. just started to feel it the last six yeah. months i think we're plateauing a bit okay. everybody's throwing their elbows a bit more within the category so i think that growth is slowing um but that's because it's come off you know, it's tripled in three in, in sort of uh, uh, ten years. And um, is is gin a, a big thing in America, for example? Gin, well, I think um, beef eaters' biggest market in the world is the US. They drink a lot of it, Seriously? but they don't they don't value it in terms of craft credentials currently. Because so I mean, craft beer over in America is amazing massive, at the moment. Yeah. When you go to the, some of these bars, they are incredible. But but um, I, can't, I can't recall the spirit thing being massive apart from tequila dark like spirits, yeah. bourbon and Rums. tequila. Really yeah, a bit of rum actually. Yeah, but yeah. but um, I think that's about it, really. Isn't yeah, it? I've never really heard of the gin. US. Yeah, having gin in in the states. So I'm now going to look at Jonathan. Do they drink gin in the States? Um, a lot? Not you? that I it's not recall a... so much. I, th- I think we've got a history of gin. I think that's why it appeals to us. I have a long history of red wine. <laughs> red wine? <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, so so um, what about the export market? Uh, how, how is that, you know, is, yeah, so we, is that working we for We grew you? really quickly domestically, and that pulled our horns in on export, so to speak, because we just didn't have capacity to think about it. We've really focused on it for about the last 18 months, really 12, where we we got um, a part-time resource in to really help us start to focus. That part-time resource is, or Mike, he's he's nearly becoming full-time. He's up to four days a week now, so I think by the end of this year, he'll be full-time working for us on export. Um, We were very reactive, so I think British gin uh, around the world is is piquing people's interest, um, predominantly in Europe uh, initially. So we've, uh, our, our current biggest export market is Denmark. Go figure, I had no idea. What? We got a phone call from a guy <laughs> who'd been in London, saw our rhubarb gin in a few bars and said, can you send me a price list? I think I want to import your gin. They happen to be probably the best importer in Denmark. And before I'd even sent him the prices, he said, do you know what? I'm just going to place an order, send me a pallet. <clears throat> and we're now it's now our biggest export market, going really well. Wow. But we export to Denmark, Germany, a little bit to Italy, a, a few other markets where it's very small. But, but we've got Cayman Islands, Bermuda, which is it's mad. And we've just sent a, a, a short container to Australia, to Dan Murphy's out there. So we will be launching in Australia um, in July this year. I can see that in Australia. quite big um, yeah. expat communities there that yeah. are missing their gin as well, which is probably why it's, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Pleasure. Um, I'm just going to now turn to Jonathan Cushing. Now, Jonathan, I, I want you to help me with American food, please. I want a lesson a lesson. Yeah, I want a lesson in American food. Um, so, so, yeah. Go on. So, <coughs> excuse me, that gin's gone down the wrong way. <laughs> um, so, the cheeseburger is supposedly America's favourite dish. Yeah, is, that's, is, is that? Do you reckon that's true? Possibly. No. The um, what dominates in the United States is Mexican food. About sixty percent right. of, of 
the most popular restaurants from the south all the way to California are primarily Mexican um, straight through. The burger has like um, around St. Louis area and Minnesota, most popular dish coming in through there. Mm. Um, yeah. You see, hamburgers can be really bad. I mean, so bad. They can be awful. And yet now you can go into the highest end restaurant, can't you? And they can be so good. And they can be done <laughs> just so beautifully. Actually, I mean, I have to say, I, if I do have burgers, which I have them very rarely, I do make my own because I know what's in it. Yeah. I'm, and then I'm happy and I know. Um, do, you, do, do you sort of spice yours up? I Indian? do, yeah. yeah. I quite like lamb in a burger as well. Yeah. So I do quite a lot of minced lamb burgers mm. and because it just lends itself to the spice. Yeah, and so yeah. Um, so, so it can be from one end to the other, in, in, in probably in in a way that nothing, no other food stuff that I can think of can be that bad and that good. <laughs> actually, um, what about hot dogs? Is that still a is that still a thing? Well, hot dogs, hot dogs were the one of the first foods to be industrialized and portioned out and things like that. There are some good hot dogs in Chicago. If you go to the, the local butcher, you'll get something crackingly good um, in natural casing and thing. And it's just a smoked ver- version of like a sausage here, mm-hmm. normally 100% beef and so on. And then you have the bottom and industrial yeah. packet. Um, in the States, we get them in normally plastic um, pouches in the fridge section. Um, here you'll get them in a can or a jar, which is absolutely frightening. And it's it's like 54% mechanically separated chicken parts. (laughs) And um, um, yeah, so the the, the standards of hot dogs aren't available here. Um, Probably commercially, uh, Vienna hot dogs in Chicago, which makes a Chicago hot dog, cracking good product mm. you know well my, my lovely researchers here uh, I don't know whether this is true have said that German immigrant Charles Feltman is often credited with inventing the hot dog by using buns to save on plates but it was Polish immigrant Nathan Handwerker's hot dog stand on Coney Island that turned the hot dog into an icon Every 4th of July since 1916, the very same Nathan's has put on the international hot dog eating (laughs) contest. Only in America. Only in America. I have to say, though, my son is a hot dog crazy. Really? He just loves them. Where do you get them from, though? But any event we go to, anywhere, whether it be a sporting event or where, he has to have the hot dog. Because you can't make your own, can you? Do, well, can you make your own? I mean, in, a, in a way, you can have the burger. That's pretty yeah, easy. so I've been I, I've been thinking about the hot dog. Um, I have all the equipment now, sorry, about to do it. Um, you need to be able to smoke. You need to be able to grind and put it into natural casing. And if you're able to do that, you could be able to make... So it's actually like making a sausage, yeah. but actually grinding it much, much, much... Exactly, smoother. and putting the flavour into it. Um yeah, it, it makes me feel important. slightly nauseous. But it's that smoking now. That's really important, isn't it, with a hot yeah. dog? Getting that smoked flavour coming exactly. through. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So um, we, we're often told as American as apple pie. Mm. Now, I don't think of American as apple pie because, like, we have apple pie. Yeah. But, but why, so why that saying, uh, Jonathan? I don't know. Is, 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 is apple pie considered particularly American? Um, or is that just a saying? It's pretty much out? every restaurant you will get it. 
Right. Um, we normally serve it with vanilla and um, ice cream. In Wisconsin, there's um, a legend that it's supposed to be served with cheddar cheese as well, by law. Yeah, <laughs> by law. Oh, wow. Okay. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that's a bit of a myth, but, yeah. you know, that's the saying. So it says here that food critic John Mariani dates the appearance of apple pies in the United States to 1780. So uh, long after they were popular in England. So I think that what this person's saying is we've had, we've had them over here for quite a while. Um, and, and apples aren't even native uh, to the continent, actually. The pilgrims brought seeds over. I thought that. I didn't think yeah. apples were native. But oh, I think the Americans have really adopted the apple pie in a way. There's a very homely... You know, reminds you of home and of exactly you know, really rib sticking kind of lovely. dessert, and you yeah. know, it's, it's coming up off similar to bread and butter pudding but, here, yeah. Yeah. That, that sort of thing. The difference in the British apple pie and the American apple pie, the American apple pie, the crust is a lot more flakier, mm. a lot more butter in it, and it's normally piled high with twice as much as apples. So, so yeah, deeper. it's so quite it's a, a deep, deep yeah. Yeah. deep dish uh, on the apple pie and it's always served warm yeah. <laughs> vanilla ice cream. <laughs> um, and then can you tell me, now I went to Seattle, uh, it was about 18 months ago, it was the last time I went to America, and uh, they had biscuits and gravy on mm. the menu. Now, I looked at that and went, what no, is that? I've, now, do you know so, what that is? Yeah. yeah okay, what is So, um, I can't remember. It was a few years ago. My husband used to work in the States quite a lot, so he'd come and yeah. go, and I went over there once. Biscuits and great. Oh my god! Mm. It was my little bit of heaven. I Is absolutely it? loved it. Okay, but it's just so the biscuits are traditionally made with butter or lard, no. buttermilk. Oh yeah, buttermilk, 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 buttermilk and lard, uh, uh, and the milk or sawmill or country gravy with meat drippings yeah, and usually chunks of good fresh pork sausage and black pepper. What is that? It, what is that? It's heaven on a plate. It's really? <laughs> and um, I always, I tell my customers, sometimes it comes, sorry, sometimes it comes onto the menu. Yeah. Um, it contributed to the prohibition of slavery because originally it was designed for the Confederate Army's breakfast. It was a cheap way to mass produce breakfast um give them for a them. start in um, the morning but yep. it is filled with lard and love and it just made them <laughs> sluggish they didn't fuel their body right no. <laughs> and they lost a war and we ended slavery okay so they lost oh, the wow. war because of, <laughs> they lost uh, the war because of biscuits, biscuits and gravy yeah, yeah. but oh, okay. but the biscuit is actually a really quite flaky um buttery biscuit and a, a nice creamy as you said, country sauce with, um, you make the roux with the lard and then you put sausage uh, bits in it. Normally sage, thyme, pepper, and it's... It's like... It's like, it's like mm, is it like a cobbler? So, uh, sausage and mash for breakfast. It's just the best thing in the world. But like crispy. Awesome. Like suet on the top. Yeah, and I... So for me, I love savoury breakfast. Okay, it, so you've been brought up, you know, as an Indian high-quality, high-end <laughs> chef. And that's one of your favourite. I can't believe that. I love it. Really? I absolutely love it. But anything like that, anything meaty and mm. and unctuous and delicious and really bad for you is great. Have you ever tried it, Tom? No. I've not, but I really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading I haven't had lunch yet. I'm really hungry. So. I, was, I was reading it in the pa- uh, you know on paper here, and I'm thinking, God, that sounds awful. But now everybody's describing it. I think, oh, actually, I might it give do- that a bit of a go. It does divide people, though. There yeah. is 
there is it's it, either you love it or you hate it. Okay. I yeah. think uh, in the states everybody loves it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, talk, tell me about pizza because pizza really is an Italian food. It's Italian. Yeah. However, it, oh. nothing has been more you know, sort of adopted than, than pizza in America. Yeah. I love it. So, they? I mean, there's a New York pizza and then um, the California like stone baked pizza and then uh, a Chicago deep dish pizza. And and Chicago's by far the pizza capital of the United States. It dominates by about 500 square miles. And it's all because of the Chicago deep dish pizza that was invented in about 1950s by Pizzeria Uno. Um, it basically turned the pizza upside down uh, where you would have the cheese on the top. You would put the cheese at the bottom and then the ingredients and the sauce. Now, this did a lot of things. Normally, when you have the the cheese on the top, you're, you have to use mozzarella to get the right spread and the browning on that. If you put it on the bottom, you're able to use different cheeses. So you could use pecorino and you could use parmesan and cheddar and things like that. So you start building a layer of flavor combinations mm -hmm. into the pizza. And then instead of just having a thin little bit of ingredients, you could have, you know, one, two centimeters of toppings. So you have a deep dish pizza. I suppose it's so, it so it's American, so you can eat more, basically. <laughs> yeah, but, but it melts and it creates almost like a sauce that's really delicious because it's so thick and... Yeah, it's. I wouldn't call it a sauce. It's just multi-layered. But what you can do with the pizza um, the, 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 is you could build into umami quite hard. You could give it so much flavor building it upside down. So mm. we're a normal stone-baked pizza, New York thing. Now, um, you have to use fresh dough to lay it and won't snap back. You could use five-day-old dough with the Chicago pizza because you're filling it into a pan, like a pie, like an apple yeah, yeah, pie. Yeah. And so you don't worry about the shape. The ingredients will hold the shape. So the fermentation process um, will help build up the umami just in the crust. Then you can manipulate it further by buttering and making it like a croissant um, and then add the cheeses. It's not exactly healthy, is it? Everything's So Tom says he's hungry because he yeah. doesn't have lunch. You've bought one with you, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I did bring a Tom, Chicago I'll, deep dish. Tommy, about open that. Let's, 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 so, okay, so, so what's really different is uh, a it's traditional a Italian pizza would be incredibly thin. Uh, it would be a peasant food because actually often people would have hardly any tomato. Yep. Hardly. It would just be what you had. Wow, that is that like is, a that is pie. See, I'd call yeah. that a pie. But this looks healthy. It looks like it a is. quiche. It is. spinach and broccoli. Yeah. It's vegetarian. It does look like a quiche. It's all like been a... fresh made. It looks like a quiche, actually. In yeah. Terms yeah. Of it's, it's it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Completely. So what did you say this was? It's a different thing, isn't it's it? Spinach, spinach and broccoli. and broccoli. Now, see, I would call that a quiche, actually. It's awesome. Thank is it? You mm. like that, Tom? Lovely. Does it go well with gin? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. It is more quiche-like, as mm. opposed to pizza-like, mm. but then I suppose that's so, perception. So, but this is a bread, a dough. A dough, yeah. Yeah, a bread dough. And actually, it's, it's as you say, you, you've built up layers, so you can almost see layers on that. So we've got mm. some, you know, we've got some lovely cheese at the bottom, and then there's some, you know, there's some greenery, so to speak, and then you've got some lovely tomato on the top, mm. and, and, and you've, you're building up that taste Correct. layer, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, with your bank house restaurant, mm -hmm. where is that? Stafford? Oh, it's in Stafford. Yeah. Just, Which just is in the middle in the of the town country. Centre. Yeah. Mm. Um, how is your American food going down in uh, in Staffordshire? Well, I'm exceptionally busy. 
good. It's really nice. And, and, and what um, things do you have on the menu? This sort of stuff? Yeah, so sometimes the pizzas come in and out. Um, always have the burger is static and veggie burgers. And then um, at the moment we're doing the, the San Francisco Mission Burrito and enchiladas, um, some California tacos. Um, we're doing smokehouse with, you know, like, uh, baby back ribs and things wow. like that. Um, and what I try to do is have um, represent all the cultural influences in American cuisine into my menu. I even ha- even have NASA's influences in there. Which is? That's oh, the sous vide. Oh, uh, the sous vide. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair um, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and um, what are people? Are actually people going? I am going to go to an American restaurant, or are people going? Oh, I'm just going. There's a really great restaurant around the corner, and they just do great stuff. Are people actually considering it to be American, and and then making that choice? Uh, because I'm. As I said to you at the beginning, I'm struggling to identify American food, you know, as, as a category. Yeah. Are, are you beginning to make impact in terms of people going, oh, well, this is American food. This is interesting. Um, yeah, that's a that's a little bit hard question for me to answer. I mean, I definitely know that they're coming to me as a chef, mm. um, and I'm pulling him, and I always do something quirky and mm. exciting and things. Um, I do trump American food. I, like, there's no. British food in my um, restaurant. If you ask for brown sauce, you're shown the door. Um, things like that. I re- I, I refuse. <laughs> so uh, HP. Yeah. Yeah, oh, there's yeah, just yeah, um, that sort of thing. And um, I, I refuse to serve anything um, like you know chips or anything like that. So um, I, I'm very much the only thing British in my restaurant is English breakfast tea. Um, I think if I didn't serve that, that would be uproar. Um, and that's, you know, uh, I do think people are clocking the American. I was pushing more of the California cuisine um, sort of thing, mm. mantra. Um, that wasn't very well received, you know, going back to the source and all that, you know, cooking from scratch and things like that. Um, they're, they're much more clocking on to the American and the burger mm. kind of thing. But I think there's a real opportunity, Harry, don't you, to... to actually have a bona fide American restaurant yep. that has a real identity. So America's got incredible wines for a start, you know, to go with it. Absolutely. As opposed to the diner concept. So this is what I was going to say. So in most people's minds, American food is that diner concept. Mm. Um, your milkshakes and your burgers and your that We've kind of thing. milkshakes next week. Did you know that? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> or the other, the other side of it is... Um, America's such a melting pot. So, you, you know, you've got the Creole and you've got all of that mm. other stuff, the spice and all of that kind of stuff. So do you see that as separate? And do you, or do you see that as... as so, it's, it's really, I think it's really difficult. You yeah. know, I, I've been working on this. I'm a chef and I'm also an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the halfway in the process of writing my first cookbook. And it was, the first question is, what is American yeah. cuisine? Yeah. And um, at first I thought, oh, America's 200 years old. It's a blank slate. Anything kind of goes. Then I kind of quickly realized this is absolutely not right. The Native Americans were there for 10,000 years. They knew these ingredients and they're smoking and barbecuing and mm-hmm. curing and doing all sorts of things. And even Christopher Columbus came over and said the cuisine in the, of the Native Americans are far superior than the Italians and the French. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the Americas 
had a fantastic foundation on cuisine. And, and natural ingredients yeah, to, and, yeah, exactly. to go with it. So yeah. anything, so we had this level, and I said before, 60% of the Mexican food is dominating in America's, but Mexican is actually Mayan. It's pretty much yeah. Mayan food. Mm. And so for anything new to come in, had to beat or be on par with what was already mm -hmm. there. You yeah. couldn't just drop in rubbish yeah. because you might as well have a lovely turkey and cranberries <laughs> or some maple syrup, you know. Um, so then we had a number of cultural influences like the Italian-Americans coming up with the, the Chicago deep dish pizza. Then, you know, we have the, the Jews... Jewish in New York coming up with like the Reuben pastrami mm. sort of thing like that. So we're having all these sorts of little other in, in addition things being spread throughout the the United States that are equal or better to mm. the, 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 what was absolutely existing. But what sadly is coming over is all the industrial marketed Rubbish branded stuff, yeah. Twinkies, you know, Coca-Cola, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, big brand Mm. hamburger joints and all that sort of thing and it's giving the wrong impression of what american food, food really be. is yeah i mean i think we, i think in some respects we have the same trouble in the uk in 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 that um you know it's pretty difficult to identify what uk what is food british. you know what yeah. is british yeah. because we are culinary magpies and we've had all sorts of people invading us and being yeah. here and we travel and we've got the yeah. you know influences from everywhere and we had an empire uh, you know, so and but it's the same with America in a way. You, you know, it's harder to say this is somebody's indigenous cuisine when you've got so many influences and, and a history where people are coming in and out of the country and lots of different things are happening. Um, but I actually think that makes the UK a very, very exciting place to do with food. Mm -hmm. Whereas possibly if you go to Japan, you know, that mm -hmm. hasn't got all those influences, their, their food history is incredibly pure, mm -hmm. for one better word, and, and very, very distinctive. Uh, you know, and that's great. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited by yeah, the fact that we have all these weird and wonderful things that Amazing. come over. But, it, you um, know, people absorbing new yeah. things and new mm. food, not necessarily new food, but new concepts and new cooking methods mm. and that kind of thing. But what I do think is a shame, Jonathan, as you say, is that, you know, the, the so my perception, and I know quite a lot about food, I think, mm -hmm. my perception of American food is it is rubbish mm. because actually all we're getting over in the UK is is, is pretty it's awful industrialised version yeah. of American food, exactly. whereas some of the things you're saying sound uh, really interesting. Yeah, I can't eat the American food in the UK. In the UK. Um, well, that says everything, really, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> and I get really excited and I see there's an American joint and I just run over there and I just put it to the yeah. side. And then um, this week, um, my mentor, Master Chef Luce, is coming. Mm. Um, he was Clinton's personal chef at the White House, and he had the number one destination restaurant in the world. Mm -hmm. So he's coming in to revamp my menu with me. Amazing. Which is really nice because we're going to um, try to get Michelin's attention. Yeah. Wow. Um, in Stafford. Well, well done. Yes. Very but good. we need a destination restaurant. Stafford needs as, as much help <laughs> as possible. Um, but we're trying to definitely put um, American cuisine on the map and get the stereotype that, you know, that American food is rubbish. It's absolutely not. I mean, that pizza there literally has a, like a half a kilo of really high-end cheese. Uh, yeah. And that's absolutely. what you, the standard you really, that you would you, get into Chicago. You could taste the broccoli in that, which ah. is... 
Well, Tom is eight and a half of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're all right, aren't you, Tom? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. We've got to end the programme okay. uh, in, in a minute. Tom, have you got just any thoughts? Um, you know, for somebody that's been in the food sector, have you got any thoughts on American food? Because it's not really something I've really, really, really paid much attention to. Um, I think similar to yours in terms of the stuff we get over here is that industrialised stuff, which obviously you can't even eat. But um, I've been on holiday to America a few times. And, and do you know, when you, when you actually get in there and you get to the proper restaurants, I went into Napa Valley because my brother-in-law's based in uh, San Francisco at the moment. We, me and my wife went into Napa Valley. We were blown away. Mm. You know, you would go into a small little cafe, which in the UK would be average. The level, and I think Napa Valley, there's a halo effect of it's near the American School of Culinary Art. Mm. So the standard in that area I'm is from, just, from San Francisco. Okay, mm-hmm. but yes. but even into San Francisco, <laughs> you know, the, the advanced nature of, which I think we're getting to, but we're not there yet in terms of farmers markets, producers taking their stuff to market and having a brand for their farm. You know, farmers branding what they're doing, creating that equity in the product that they're growing because it's... It's fruit and veg. It's high quality fruit mm. and veg. But they're creating equity in their product through branding it, having shops in farmers down at the quayside mm-hmm. in in San Francisco, but up into Napa Valley. Just it blows your mind from, um, you know, a McDonald's or a Burger King burger in the UK or a hot dog, through to the culinary excellence that there is out there. You know, once you experience proper American cuisine, it is fantastic stuff. Well, that's um, that's an advocate there for you, um, Jonathan. Um, thank you so much to my uh, lovely guests. So that's Tom Warner of Warner's Distillery. And if you want to know how to get hold of um, rhubarb gin and all the other lovely gin you've got, we'll do some links from the website. Um, so thank you very much. Keep on in there. I know it's, it's probably getting tougher and tougher in your world, but just you know, hang on in there. We will. It's it's a good brand. And um, um, Jonathan, thank you so much. I've learned so much actually. Um, and I need to. Pay a bit more attention about American food. Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I need to be a bit more aware. Um, and Jonathan has a, a restaurant called the Bank House Restaurant, and we will do a link as well uh, from the website to that. Um, and there's even culinary lessons like how to make the pizza and things like that. There you I don't, go. I don't hide. I don't hide my secrets. Excellent. Well, that's even better. Love it's it. even better. Um, any thoughts on today's program? Oh, just been um, learning stuff. Little, yeah, yeah. Eating Eye as opening, usual. really. I mean, for me, Indian food in the US, the US for me seems really far behind when it comes to Indian food and and the the type of yeah. Just quickly before there. we end, what, why is there not the just when you go over to America, you cannot get Indian food. It, it, you know, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to have yeah, been adopted. Yeah, and I don't understand no, why. In a way that Mexican has and Chinese has, but they don't seem to have adopted Indian food. Yeah, I think most of it is um, the Balti, if I get this right, is actually an Indian, sorry, a British cuisine that's yeah, come, that's over, has come yeah. over here. Um, British food really hasn't made much of a mark um, in the States, nor has, um, yeah, the Indian. So it's... It's interesting. It, yeah, and I I, I, the flavor combinations of India, you know, it's all the aromatic stuff. I'm like yeah. sitting there thinking that it should actually take off. It should. It should. I think it Harry, started get over break there. Yeah. I do Harry, think it's... Yeah, that's how. When I have American <laughs> friends that come over here, they go, oh, can you take me to, <laughs> you know, exactly. can you take me to Dishoom? Can you take me to uh, Jim Carner? Can yeah. you take me to... Because they just, they just go, we don't my, have that. My book don't have it in America. So the book that I um, launched a couple of years ago, that was for the US market because there is... There is now starting to is 
crawl through a little simmer of, of it could people. be a television star over there not oh, there, there, you go. there, you, there you go. Um, so thank you to my two lovely guests uh, Tom Warner and Jonathan Cushing you've been listening to the Food Talk show uh, we're on lots of different radio stations across the UK and further afield we're in America as well actually yeah. Jonathan just thought I'd let you know you can also download our weekly podcast from iTunes Stitcher Player FM Spotify and the podcast app on your phone thank you to my fellow guest presenter Harry Gotra thank you Harry thank you for having me you got your last one next week while Ollie and yep. Holly are swanning off. Let's hope there's more food. Oh, you're enjoying it, aren't you? I am, I am. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, if you know someone doing something groundbreaking in the food sector or somebody who's really knowledgeable, like Jonathan, we'd love you to get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts that we have now, go to foodtalk.co.uk. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Bye.